If news organizations were people, would you want to be their friend? I came across this TikTok that actually captures the personalities of mainstream media outlets. I watched it with Sean Kamak from The Narratives Project, so see if you can hear the difference between The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, MSNBC and Fox News, The Associated Press and BuzzFeed, and even local news. Well, I, I suppose there are some people I despise with a fiery passion, and I would do anything to take them down, but... I hardly think that makes me vengeful. <laughs> here's my secret to generating wealth. Step one, be born wealthy. I'm here to tell you that this is just an undercurrent of a larger cultural problem, which is that wokeism is still asleep. You let me finish interrupting you before you finish the sentence that I was trying to interrupt. What are my thoughts? Uh, I don't know, don't really have any, just, when I get back to work, can I grab you for just a hot minute for something fun? I swear this will only waste like 45 minutes of your time. These are good and bad. They're good and bad. Uh, my friend Charlene's son is still on the run with that hostage turtle, but uh, you know, the bake sale was a smashing success. Why is everything in that video feel 100% true? 100%, that's throughout. exactly how it is. I, I, with, with the exception of Fox News and the, let me finish interrupting you when I'm trying to get interrupted. That feels more like Newsmax. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. News, Newsmax, I feel like, is where all of the uh, Italian-American commentators <laughs> yeah. just yell yeah. with yeah. their hair slicked yeah. back as loud as they can. They have found their home in that place. And, and good for them. Maybe not giving Fox News their due. Yeah, fair enough, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's, what stuck out to you there? Because, like, I, I'm really curious how it is that when you, you watch these things, they all feel completely familiar, all the way down to, like, the contempt of the New York mm. Times writer <laughs> uh, who smiles through her teeth and doesn't understand that she's kind of an awful person. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, it, it, it's, it's, you know, this is kind of trite to say, but it's funny because it's true. I mean, it, these, these publications have, like, person, you know, they almost have, like, a soul, right? And they have like, a, it, it's almost because like they're speaking to and representing a particular kind of political subculture, like a, a, a particular kind of people who enjoys a particular kind of media and a particular, particular kind of content. Now that's like exaggerated, obviously. I mean, you know, not everybody who likes BuzzFeed like talks like this, but, but it, is, it, is, it is pretty close. Do you like TikTok? Uh, no. No, I don't like TikTok. I there's a there's a part of me that feels like it is the most fun medium of the moment. My wife is on TikTok and she'll show me videos all the time. I think they're freaking hilarious and the algorithms are incredibly smart. They serve up exactly what it is your sense of humor is, mm -hmm. which is a way in which I think when people are on there, they really feel seen because the thing is able to figure out what actually makes them laugh. Uh, but then it, it condenses things down in an even more crude way than Twitter does. Like Twitter is like the international telephone game where everybody's quote tweeting one another, taking each other's arguments in bad faith, and then TikTok adds video onto that exact same toxic dynamic and I don't know how to feel about it besides well we're having fun while it lasts yeah well yeah well Twitter Twitter is like um, like you said it's a telephone game right it's people like whispering to one another and and losing certain information and adding certain information and, and mutating it it's like a telephone game in a school for bullies is basically what <laughs> what, what Twitter is right TikTok you're right there's a visual content to it it to me, it feels a little bit more judgy because, you know, we, we're talking about this. You see, like, 
you know, here's five reasons why I'm right and you're a dummy. It's like, you know, reason one, you know, <laughs> because I'm right and you're a dummy sort of thing. Um, no, I, I, don't, I don't like TikTok. I don't really like any social media at all, to be very frank with you. Um, my, you know, but I, I don't want to kind of, you know, I don't want to yuck other people's yum that do like that yeah, stuff. Do. No, no, I, yeah, don't, I, do. I really don't. There's, you know, there's, there's, you know, just because I don't like something doesn't mean it's bad. Um, well, I think you have a pretty good sense of what is bad for us. And so just a word to everyone out there. This is right now. I'm Stephen Kent. And Sean Kamak is here with me in the studio. Sean is the director of The Narratives Project, a social venture for political mindfulness and peace. I think that's code for they explain why the news media makes you feel awful almost every day day. Uh, if you look, uh, if you do like what you're hearing, seeing, sensing, please do hit the subscribe button and like this video. We have new episodes every Thursday and original content in the days in between. So Sean, tell me a little bit about like the mission of the org and what is political mindfulness? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, the organization is concerned, like a lot of people are out there now with um, things like social animosity. You know, we're, we're, we're in a time that's pretty divided. Um, I'm not going to go so far as to say it's the most divided time in our history, because we did fight a civil war, after all. Um, but it is a pretty, uh, a pretty rough time um, in, let's say, the national discourse sort of thing. Um, and what, what, what we want to try and do is identify how basically our new media ecology, talking about Twitter and social media and, and you know, YouTube and things like that, um, how that shapes the way that we make our minds up, how our innate sort of cognitive biases shape the way we make our minds up, and how all of that shapes our perspectives of those who disagree with us. And that's kind of the, the most important part of what we're trying to do is figure out how to tell other perspectives on news stories and topics in a way that is legitimate to the other person. Because, you know, this is pretty kind of obvious. Is, I mean, is that, that where the mindfulness part comes in? Yeah, well, the, the mindfulness is, you know, we know what mindfulness is. It's, it's an awareness, it's a conscious reflective awareness of, of, of the way that you're thinking such that you can exert more agency over your thoughts and opinions. Okay, so I mean, so that's a good working definition of the idea of mindfulness. This comes from the Buddhist tradition? Yeah, I mean, there's right? a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of traditions that are, are concerned <laughs> with this. But yeah, mostly Buddhist is like kind of what we're grounded in, I suppose. Yeah, so knowing when feelings wash over you, taking a moment to reflect on where they're coming from, why you feel them, mm -hmm. and then choosing to let those things pass. If you want. Because uh, my, yeah. my practice that I had taken on, and, and I had pretty much just picked up like a mindfulness podcast a couple of years ago when I first got into media, I was spending all of my time reading news articles every day and catching news newsletters in the evening so that I could be ready for doing media pitching and booking stuff for TV and radio in the morning. And that requires you always being aware of what's going on in the news. And what happens is you can't control your thoughts. I mean, because you're just hyper aware of all these things that are going on in the internet, going on in the world, and you're always thinking about what you're gonna be doing in the morning, rather than just taking time to be with your family, taking time to like watch a television show or read a book, you can't turn the thoughts off. And so I did pick up like mindfulness meditations for a while, guided by an app, and I found it to be useful because I ended up trying to sit, 
quiet my thoughts. And I think the whole practice of mindfulness was just, you know you're gonna get hit with distracting ideas. But then you take it, you recognize it, and you say, not now. <laughs> I will talk to you later because I'm just gonna focus on the, the sound and feeling of my breath. Uh, but it's really hard and it's kind of agonizing to do. It's pretty difficult. And the way, the way that we take this and, apply, and why we call it political mindfulness is because we're, we're trying to apply part of that practice to how we like what happens with our minds when we see new political or social information um, because you know you see a tweet about something you see a headline and you're gonna immediately have a reaction to it if it's about something that's kind of morally outrageous maybe it's immigration or abortion or healthcare or the president doing something whatever um, and it's all, all the ask is is just recognize that reaction and figure out you know, maybe ask questions as to why does this particular thing irk me so? And is my response to this, is the affect that I'm sort of experiencing what I want to have? Um, and because, you know, you don't want to live a miserable life where you're just, you know, angry all the time at the internet. Um, you probably don't. Maybe if people want to live that life, go for it. But most people probably shouldn't be living that life. But there's a certain amount of comfort that can be found in knowing who the outgroup is, who the people are that make you angry and who sort of give you a sense of who you are. I mean, negative polarization, it is in a way, it's like a soothing effect. You know who the bad guys and dragons are that you need to slay in life. And when you are able to like make or sort of consume that sort of hyper-polarizing news, it helps ground you in its own way. I mean, I think that that's why like the whole practice of mindfulness, like taking that thought and then putting it aside, it's absolutely painful because it's kind of not natural in a sense. Mm -hmm. Like mindfulness goes against a lot of what is actually, I think, soothing for humans to do, which is do, 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 create, 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 and war, war, war. Yeah, yeah, find the bad guy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, there's, a, there's an element of empathy, right, that you're kind of talking about in here, and it's kind of painful to engage in, to actually be mindful of other people and then why you feel the way you feel. It doesn't feel great. No, it doesn't feel great at all. Um, and what's what's an, kind of an important distinction with this is that what we're at, we're not asking that people, you know, sing kumbaya and love each other and like look past their differences all the time. It's like you know the reason you disagree with people is because you have values and they're violating those values. And there's nothing wrong with feeling like people are doing something wrong. That's a that's a perfectly reasonable thing, and it's, it's unreasonable to ask people not to have values in in, in that way. Um, but what we are asking people to do is just, let's actually put it this way. Th I think this is a helpful way to think about it. When you ask somebody, why do they disagree with you on X topic, abortion, whatever, why, why do people disagree with you on that? The, the answer you often get is that they're, people disagree with me because they're stupid or they're evil or they're, they're ignorant or they're brainwashed. Or you get some shade of those answers. Mm -hmm. They say, well, you know, if only they, you know, kind of knew the studies that I know. And people to the left tend to think mostly of the ignorant side of that spectrum, that my opponents are ignorant. And I've noticed that people on the right tend they're to think evil. brainwashed. Oh, brainwashed? I, yeah, I, you think, I think brainwashed? I think that it's usually brainwashed, that people people have been deceived. I, yeah, yeah <laughs> there is that theme of like the indoctrinated leftist. You, you, you sort of you know, you pop that up. Um, but but that's, that's how we, that's how people tend to answer those questions because it feels like those are the only logical answers. But they're, the, the answer that we're trying to go for is the better answer, which is, you know, why, do, why does somebody disagree with you on this? Well, the answer is because people with different backgrounds, people with different experiences and values can come to different conclusions reasonably. 
right? Because it's the application of reason to come to their conclusion based in different priors, different values, different premises that get you there. There's nothing pathological. You know, we, we want to think that people that disagree with us are pathological. There's something wrong with them. And if only we could fix them, then they'd think like us. But that's crap. People disagree with us because there's, you know, there's, there's different values out there. And there's, you know, we say this a lot. There's more than one way to live the good life in that you know, just because somebody disagrees with you doesn't mean that, you know, they're a bad guy. It just means they're doing life differently. Do you think that the way social media is wired today, I mean, like even down to like YouTube algorithms and social media strategy from different news organizations, they're bombarding you with information and feelings all the time. Do you think that it limits our ability to make cognitive choices between A, B, and C and the ways that we're feeling? Or do you think that we are sort of consciously losing our free will over time to these items. Because you talk a lot about reason, and there's sort of this tension there with whether or not we are only really able to make a certain range of choices. I feel like what we have done in the past 20 years with the digital era is we have limited our ability to perceive what our choices of action are and our choices of feelings are. And we're sort of on autopilot and just being pushed by algorithms towards certain outcomes. And I, I think, I, I don't think that's wrong. Um, I, I think part of it is that we're the disc, the, the thing that keeps everybody up at night is no longer. So we were watching the TikTok video of the local news, the, the local news um, character, right? Yeah. About the, eh, the bake sale was a smashing success. Like people don't care about their local bake sale anymore. They, 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 not as much as they used to because what keeps people up at night and what everybody talks about are mostly national conversations. And national conversations, if your concern is something that's happening on a national front, you have zero control over it. You have no control over it. You, you, there's nothing you can do to change what the president is doing or what, or what you know, the, this, this, you know what, whatever the topic is that people are discussing. Because um, it's not within your grasp to exercise agency over because it's so far away from you. It's like staying up and worrying about what North Korea is doing. It's like you have no control over it. Um, and what we've done is we moved away from like local conversations, local discourse into exclusively, I shouldn't say exclusively, but mostly national discourse. And so something that people could do if they wanted to regain more agency is to care more about what's going on in their in, perhaps in their state, in their county, in their community, um, because those are the conversations that you can actually exert some agency in and exert some control over. Um, yeah, I mean, this is this is one of the main themes that I'm taking on in my my book, which comes out in November. It's called How the Force Can Fix the World, and it's it's sort of about taking like Star Wars lessons, which you know draws from Eastern faiths as well as as well as that of Christianity and Judaism, um, and basically sort of reflecting on the main message of Star Wars is that people don't like when they are not in control of things, that we fixate on all the things in our lives that are areas of uncertainty, and those sorts of fears and anxieties are what sort of push you towards hyper control freak types of behavior and inevitably the dark side, right? Mm -hmm. Like doing evil things to control the things that you view in your life as threatening and uncontrollable. And it's just kind of puzzling to me that we do spend so much time as a culture zeroed in on the things in which we cannot control. Why would we do that? Because that is not rational. And you talk a lot about reason. And I don't, I, I guess like looking at sort of human action recently, I just sort of feel like maybe we are not like the reason driven <laughs> creatures that we often talk about ourselves as. Well, it would be rational if obsessing over something out of your control signals to other people who also obsess about things that are out of their control that you're on their team. 
then it's rational. And I think that's what a lot of this is, is a lot of it's in group out group dynamics. You know, we're signaling to people that I am upset with the same thing as you are. And so we're on the team. It doesn't really matter if it's true or not, or if we can do anything about it, but we're on the same team against those other bad guys. Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of how we have to be. Is mindfulness the same as empathy? No. Trying to, trying to understand necessarily your opponents, or is it just understanding how they make you feel? It, well, mindfulness is more, as far as we apply it, we understand it and we apply it, it's, it's more of an introspective thing. It's trying to figure out why I'm reacting to what this other person is saying in this way, such that I can figure out if that's actually the reaction I want to have. Do I want to be upset with them? Do I want to be angry? Um, and maybe the answer is yes. And if, if the answer is yes, okay. But it, it's good to have a little bit of choice over that. Um, empathy is a little bit different. Um, you know, you, that, that's trying to... And in fact, maybe we'll say it this way. I think we are a little bit too obsessed with what other people... The way that other people are thinking about things. And this comes back into like the, mm-hmm. path, the, the, the pathologizing of, of people who disagree with you. Is that I want to understand what the heck is wrong with you that makes you think that way. Uh-huh. Not what the heck is wrong with me that makes me think this way. It's because I'm right. It's like you got to be you know, screwy to think that. Um, and that's kind of a, um, the, the, the overt concern with the other can lead to that sort of thinking, which is pathologizing them. Mm-hmm. Um, what would be better, and it's much more difficult to do this, as you, as you know, is to be introspective about yourself, figure out you know, what's, what's wrong with the way that I think about things? What's, what is it about my values that means, that makes me react in this way when I see immigrants or, or you know, immigration, the, the immigration crisis or when I see Donald Trump doing something? What is it about me that does that um, instead of concerned, you know, being concerned with what's wrong with that guy for thinking that way? The Narratives Project, why did you start it? Uh, what was the market sort of demand, the impetus for putting together this website, this sort of social media mm-hmm. YouTube operation mm-hmm. that breaks down narratives in the media? Um, so I was writing a, a research proposal um, f- on uh, political, the evolution of political narratives, because this is something that I've been, I've been interested in. Um, I did my MA at the University of Chicago, um, and there I studied cultural psychology. So I've, I've always been interested in in the relationship between psyche and culture and, and how we, we ought to talk about those things and how that fits into broader sort of, you know, pluralistic considerations of how people who disagree can actually get along. Um, and so I was writing a research proposal just like wondering how I could model the evolution of narratives from a, a single source out. And, and what is it about different political moral orientations that, that, uh, bounds what information people yeah. integrate and share. Um, and this all started with a tweet um, about... It all starts with a tweet. It always starts with a tweet. Yeah, everything. <laughs> good and bad, it all starts with a tweet. That's it. That's the it tweet. It all starts with a tweet. Um, <laughs> uh, it was a tweet about Kyle Rittenhouse, um, the shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin, if you remember that. Um, yeah, you remember that? The yeah. white nationalist the, militant? The white nationalist militant, or the yeah. night nationalist militant, or he's, or he's just a, you know, yeah, a good exactly. old boy who's trying to protect his community. And that mm-hmm. was, that was the split, right? He's either a radical white nationalist there to, um, victimize, uh, you know, black and brown folks, or he's like, you know, a, a local who's trying to protect local businesses from, you know, riots and mobs. Um, and I just sketched out like a quick little 
you know, you know, using some stuff from cultural evolution, how we got there. And I, it was a really ugly document, and I put it out on Twitter. And much to my surprise, um, people liked it, and they shared it and said, you know, hey, like someone said, hey, let me DM you, uh, let me um, PayPal you 50 bucks. This is great. Keep it up. I've never made $50 uh, from an audience member doing this show. Yeah, yeah, where, yeah. Where, where's yeah. the audience yeah, member yeah. than me? Yeah, <laughs> but, but that's a great sign, right? It's like, it, for me, that was a signal that yeah. people actually kind of want this stuff. Let's let's dig into it. Let's yeah. see. And and now, just a little over a year later, um, we have a, a small a small staff and research team, um, and we're trying to create um, better sort of media analysis and content to break this stuff down. Well, I mean, so with the the Kyle Rittenhouse event and Kenosha, mm -hmm. how do you put together a narrative analysis? without knowing the details of the story. Because at the time that you had put together this narrative mm -hmm. of, of how people are discussing what's happening in Wisconsin, you yourself don't have the facts of the situation. We were still trying to figure out based on pieces of photos and videos and tweets what is actually happening on the ground and who is this Rittenhouse character. So how do you put yourself in the position of doing narrative analysis without truth sort of anchoring the whole thing? Because we're not talking about what happened. We're talking about how people are talking about what happened. Mm -hmm. So it's like meta news, kind of. And so we don't need, for the work that we do, we don't really need the facts. We just need the facts insofar as people think what they're talking about are facts. We just need to know what people are talking about because we're trying to understand how people are talking about things. And I, I know this is, this is getting kind of jumbled, but the, the point is that, like, what is it about a particular political culture, call it, you know, conservative, liberal, progressive, libertarian, that perceives certain information about that story as particularly salient? Like, that's what I'm gonna remember. I'm gonna remember the fact that he's from out of, out of state. Mm -hmm. I'm going to remember that. Why is that relevant to some, but it's not to others? I'm going to remember the fact that he's, you know, uh, he's If got I remember a gun. correctly, so out of state mm -hmm. was mostly an observation that was made in left media yes. about Rittenhouse. And I'm guessing that that gets included and recycled in like CNN and MSNBC coverage to paint him as an interloper. Well, it, yeah, it's, it, what, it, what it's trying to do is say, this guy is an outsider who's coming into this community to do trouble. And you see the same thing on the left with a lot of, uh, excuse me, on the right with a lot of stories. Like um, during like the, the Antifa protests and riots of last year, there was a lot of stories of like protesters being bussed into cities. Yeah. And that was, and, and why is that relevant to people? Why, why is it relevant? And it, it, it's relevant because it says that, it says to the audience that maybe this is not Maybe this is astroturfed, right? This is an outsider. He's an interloper trying to cause trouble. And those narratives always come complete with who's the puppet master, right? Of course. Who's, uh, who's, of who's course. funding the, uh, yeah. the busing of the project? Yeah. It's George, George Soros. Soros. It's yeah. Charles Cope. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You always have to have a puppet master and then the puppets, and then you are sort of the, the recipient well, of that. Well, yeah. you know, as creatures, we're, you know, as animals, we're always trying to find, like, we're trying to infer causality. Like, what made this happen? And the image of the puppet master, there's a reason when you say that, I understand exactly what you mean, right? The image of that puppet master is a, it's like a causal inference of all of this happened because some puppet master made it so. Um, and we're always trying to do that. And that's part of how these narratives go. Uh, you know, let's actually define a narrative. A narrative is a linear, um, let me say, it's a, it's a linear causal information packet. So it's information, 
is put in a linear format, this, then this, then this, that's the causality, is this, yep. therefore this, therefore this, and it's packaged up into a way that I can utter and get in your ear, into your mind, and you understand what I'm saying. That's what a narrative is. But that's very complicated. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, yeah, you're okay. saying that we just do this naturally. Well, we're sophisticated creatures. <laughs> we're sophisticated creatures. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was like, what, what do you call people like storytelling machines? Yeah. Um, that we're able to condense really complicated stories down into really quick packaged narratives so that we can explain what it is we did this morning before we came into the studio to people. And like, that's the exact same function that you're talking about, how we explain news stories to yeah, people. Yeah, uh, and think the reason why, let's talk about rationality, right? Why is it rational to do that? It's rational to do that because uh, the cost of telling you nothing but the facts is outrageous because I'd have to tell you first I did this then I you know I woke up at 6:30 this morning and I brushed my teeth and then you know it, it'd be way too much information it would be so much information it would be rendered useless right mm -hmm. and the if it's useless the utility's out the window isn't there a guy in the the movie Office Space who does this and he just like draws on tells you every detail every, yeah. you ask him like how he's doing he's like well actually I'll tell you about what I did this morning and then I put sugar on my cereal yeah, and, yeah. and there's like oh god no go away sir yeah. And that's why, and, and when we tell stories to other people and convey information, we're always trying to reduce it and compress it down into like the minimum necessary information in a format that actually communicates the information. Um, it's that like optimum point between information and, you know, breadth and scope. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what a narrative is. And, and we do that because, you know, we, we just are limited creatures with limited resources and limited time. And I have to get something to you quick. Um, if we didn't have narrative, we didn't evolve to, you know, be able to do this, uh, we would have been eaten and destroyed as a species a long time ago. There's a there's sort of an element of this that is, you know, incredibly lofty. You're looking at uh, sort of the, the way the media landscape works. And I feel like there are certain brands of not conservatives, but like libertarians. And I'm, I'm painting you with that brush here for a moment to try to understand your politics, but who sort of place themselves like above the fray at some times. And I think that that's one way that libertarians like to view themselves is that they're above sort of the tribal blue versus red warfare that goes on online in Washington, DC. Uh, is there an area where you find yourself slipping into those sort of same traps? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been accused of being like a, an Olympic level fence sitter before. Um, I'm not, I, I'm not. I, I have my own values, you know, I have my own politics. For a lot of these stories, I have my own opinions about how this went, my own gut reactions, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, but that doesn't stop me from being able to sort of take a step back, try and intellectualize this and break it down. Also something that helps is that our team is pretty politically diverse. Um, at we, the Narratives Project. Uh, yeah, the Narratives Project, we have a very politically diverse team and that's nice just bouncing our biases off one another. It's like, when I saw this, this is the thing that I felt. And, you know, uh, you know, the research manager and would I think say, that, no, that I didn't that. that fits nicely in the description. I think of, like, political libertarians and then also heterodox liberals, like the people who have sort of been cast out mm -hmm. of the democratic coalition for having, uh, I don't know, old-school neoliberal opinions about mm -hmm. left politics. Like, those are all the people you find sort of on the, on the outs with progressive activists today who I feel like fit into the audience base that you're talking about building. Yeah, yeah, and um, something that might be worth mentioning is that when it, when it comes to like, what's my political disposition or political orientation, what I would say is that I'm, I'm a, like kind of a pluralist 
first and foremost. And what pluralism is is just the, the idea that, you know, the ma- I said this earlier, the maxim of it is that there's more than one way to live the good life. And what that means is that I can have my personal political and social views. And I can live that life and manifest the life that I want, you know, that's meaningful to me in my locality. And other people can do it differently. They can be, you know, libertarians, conservatives, progressives, and disagree with me. And I don't think that they're wrong for living their life the way that they want to. It would be, it would be wrong for me to be that, but it's not wrong for them to be that. And so pluralism is like, it's essentially a framework for allowing genuine political and cultural diversity. Um, and lets me not be a fence-sitter, because I'm neither a centrist, to say like, well, you know, we're all the same, or like, we should all come together. It's like, no, difference is real. Difference is okay. Um, you want to live that life, go for it, and I'm going to live this life the way I want it, and we'll interact as much as we need to. That's the ideal. And I feel like we talk a whole lot about pluralism being what we do here in this country, and we don't see much of it, right? No. Most of the news... Right now, like you turn on Fox, they're going to be covering things that happened in Portland uh, as if they are things that are then going to happen to you mm-hmm. in Western North Carolina, which might be the case because you live near Asheville, yeah, right. uh, which is the Portland of the East Coast. But every story that should be local is then turned into national. And while I feel like we are at this moment of being incredibly unpluralistic, it also feels like we are at peak pluralism as a country, that where are so many of us that sort of make up this collective being America, it's just kind of hard to know what we're doing here anymore as a national project. Yeah, the, so there's two parts of pluralism, and it, 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 it's when you say like we're, ma- we're very pluralist, I think what you're indicating is true in an evaluative sense. Like when you look out at the nation, there, are, there is difference. Right. We can evaluate the fact that there, there is difference. There are, you know, there's a wide span of different political cultures and what have you. Um, uh, and that's what we are. The problem is, is like we're not, we don't have a, a really good, perhaps more normative pluralistic philosophy to then go f- take, take the next step, which is to say, okay, how do we deal with that difference? You know, do we do we you know do we do the civic nationalist thing where we just make everybody American? You you know you can have your minor marginal differences, but everybody's American. You can tell by my tone I don't necessarily agree yeah. with that sort of that sort of uh, idea. Um, but yeah, and that's why we have to. I think we ought to have a better like normative pluralistic philosophy, um, which is difficult. It's very difficult. Yeah, I mean, is there a, there's a tension there with the whole ethic of diversity? which is, you know, we think of diversity sort of as a good in and of itself, that it in and of itself is a virtue that we should pursue. We should just have diversity as a people. But unless the diversity is a means to a certain end, which is political cohesion or national goal that we've, you know, somehow decided on in the halls of Washington uh, or a live and let live philosophy, the diversity only equals chaos. And, And you hear like nationalist conservatives talk a lot about this. Tucker Carlson has kind of become like their avatar for questioning whether diversity is good. And I think it's basically this part of the argument. It is whether or not diversity is then tied to letting people live and flourish in their own spaces, or if it is a threat to that idea of being able to find happiness as you see fit. I, I think, let me uh, let, let me make a point, maybe extend an olive branch to the Tucker Carlson crowd a, a, a little bit, and that is that they're recognizing that culture is important, 
They're recognizing that culture, that, that means values, norms, rituals, shared language, shared art. They're recognizing the importance of that. And that's right. Culture is extremely important to have social cohesion. What I think they're doing wrong is that they're saying, and the, the, the level of focus we need to have for that culture is national. And that is where I would disagree with them. I think you need to have thick, rich cultures more locally to allow a, di a, you know, a, a diversity of different ways to live the life. What they think is that, well, you know, we need to make the culture national and have everybody agree, then we'll have peace. It's like, no, if you let people have peace, live in local political cultures, you can, you can get peace in a much better way because it's not peaceful to, to eradicate cultures and force everybody to agree. Um, and you won't get peace from that because you're trying to get 400 million people to all get on the same page is a, is not going to work. <laughs> immigration's probably the area in which this whole problem has gotten to be so intense. I think immigration is like the single thing that we need to solve as a country and come up with an actual policy mm -hmm. rather than just making up as we go along that has just sort of torn our body politic in, in half in the past 20 years. Look no further than the situation down in Del Rio on the Rio Grande River as thousands, I think tens of thousands mm. at this point of, of Haitian migrants have made their way up there and have just been in this standoff situation uh, with Border Patrol. And y'all did a narrative analysis of this. I'm wondering if you could sort of speak to the Del Rio situation and how the country is talking about that. Because immigration is a national issue. It's of national concern to every different political faction. But it's also a state issue, right? Texas has their own concerns with immigration that are disconnected from the rest of the country. Like the governor down there, Abbott, is just working purely on security for his state. Mm -hmm. Um, and we just don't know as a country how to talk about this. Yeah, and you know, right up front, I, I never speak to like policies when it comes to immigration, like what a practical fix would be. I don't speak to it because I don't know. Um, it's not my area of expertise and I have no idea. Smarter people than I are gonna have to figure that out. Um, but what was interesting about that crisis, if, if, if that's what we wanna call it, um, was and it, this is often the case when it comes to border crises. It's, it's, this, it's a discourse of like safety and protection. Safety, protection, and oppression is usually the discourse on both the right and the left. You know, um, do we protect our national border from these foreign interlopers who are going to wreck, you know, economic and cultural havoc on the country, mm -hmm. um, or do we protect, you know, the, these? Migrants who are trying to who are living in a in, in a really bad situation who just want a better life well, That's why I want to criticize your use of the word crisis. Okay, okay. because when you use the word crisis and you sort of Participate in that narrative that what's going on down there is a crisis It's a blank check mechanism that each side wants to write for their own policy solution mm -hmm. The left is going to talk about a border crisis if they want to talk about it Like it, it kind of takes usually left media a while to recognize that there's mm -hmm. a situation at the border But when they do start talking about it as a crisis It's used as a mechanism to say we cannot have this enforcement violent situation going on Let everybody in we need to do something so that there's not any confrontation or hurt feelings or hurt 
you're, people you're down there. Right, you're and then right. the right does the same thing, crisis right, so that we can slam down the hammer harder and they are able to mentally justify putting people in cages and putting people in these camps where they just sort of stay there and break up families. Crisis is a tool, and you're, it's not you, a crisis. No, no, you're you're absolutely right. I haven't thought about the word crisis. That's absolutely what it is. What it is is a yeah. It's a it's a area that if you can just smuggle whatever in you want into it, you have, like you say, a blank check to say it's a crisis. Therefore, we need to be drastic. Crisis means it's like un, or crisis is to imply that it was um, a surprise, right? That this thing sort of popped up out of nowhere. And, and it doesn't pop up. And out it's of at the level of problem that we need dramatic action. We need, you know, uh, National Guard at the border, or we need to just open, you know, our, our border entirely. Right. Yeah, really, really good point. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't thought about that. That's right. So how do we talk about it? How do we talk about, like, the Del Rio situation <laughs> not, better? Because, you know, the, the entire flashpoint for the country was the image of the Haitians crossing the river and the Border Patrol, one particular officer on a on horseback, uh, and he, he appeared to have his hand around one of the guys crossing the river, sort of pulling him in, look of fear on that guy's face or something on that guy's face. And then there was talk of him being hit with a whip. And the entire country debated whether or not the Border Patrol was whipping Haitian migrants at the border, when what it appears to be is that they were trying to get everybody together, and they were using the, the reins of mm. the horse, and they were hitting people. And then they defended themselves by saying, we're not whipping them, these are our reins. But if you're hitting people with reins, it's a whip. <laughs> if it whips like a whip and it talks right. like a whip. Yeah, yeah and we, we just spent the entire news cycle week here uh, across like the left and right media debating whether or not people were being whipped on the border instead of talking about like, well, what do we do here? Yeah, I, so what we at the Nerdist Project, when we were kind of thinking about this, the part of this story that was very salient, um, appears to be quite salient, is, is the horseback thing. Um, and this was something that internally we kind of had to have a discussion about because the fact that the, the guys were on horses was basically invisible to me personally. I didn't see that as weird. I didn't see that as bad. It had no negative connotation with it at all because I, I live in a quite rural area. I've, I, you know, I, I know horses a lot, you know. You know horses? I know horses. That's very, that's a very sophisticated <laughs> thing to say. Um, I'm familiar. Yeah. I'm familiar with that sort of culture. Um, personally, I'm terrified of horses. To be fair, as but I but, am too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't trust them. But um, but no, it, it seemed it seemed perfectly normal. Um, yeah. But um, other people in the team, it particularly stuck out to them as like an anachronism, like like something from the past that doesn't fit in, like a like a symbol of our racist history cropping back up. And that, that makes sense, right? Because, you know, when people want to, you know, it, you get this image of, like, slave owners chasing down runaway slaves on horseback. Mm -hmm. And there, there are actually, and people were sharing these images, like, side by side of an old yeah. um, drawing of that. These things look familiar to you, therefore, immigration should just be free-for-all. Well, I yeah. mean, yeah, the, the, the argument might not be the soundest, but the comparison, yeah. why that hits people and brings up that image is because it's it's the same, it appears to be the same, or it is the same symbol to them. Um, but yeah, so if you have a, if you're, if you're like me or you're from a part of the country where people riding on horseback is particularly banal, that's not gonna stick out to you, but um, it might otherwise. Um, yeah, and, and the other thing is about, you know, you know the, the reins was a kind of an, an interesting outlier. I'm not, you know, quite sure how relevant it is 
particularly when it comes to how people are interpreting the information. But yeah, you know, I, I I'm glad you mentioned the thing about the the horses because I, I think it does stick. And it's one of those mindfulness things where you, you look at the photos and it never did occur to me until I read your narrative analysis and caught the comment about, you know, how people think about men on horseback and then sort of internalize what they think about it. And there, there are different narratives that you can sort of attach to that story. There is the cowboy, the sheriff, the lawmaker, basically the bringer of order. Mm -hmm. Still in our culture, it's just like it's incredibly ingrained because we love stories. We love our, our Western stories as well. Like it's the civilization moving West sort of idea. Mm -hmm. And it's it's not like, you know, hippy dippy to, to go in there and understand like our relationship to what men on horseback sort of symbolize. And I looked at that photo and I went, okay, actually I kind of am picking up some feelings like washing through me about like what that actually is all about. And then you think about like the New York Times writer who's, you know, sitting sitting in Brooklyn and just imagining a person on horseback with a cowboy hat grabbing a black man crossing the river and just going, oh, yeah. this is frightening. And, I, and I, <laughs> I, I, I can't fault someone for seeing that because that's yeah. their background, their values yeah. and their experiences. They see that. it that way. And it, that's a legitimate interpretation of it. Um, so what do we do? I mean, is the Narratives Project able to help push us towards action and a certain kind of change? Or is it just all about what happens inside, baby? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, you know, I think we're always trying to look inward. Um, our, our whole bag is just trying to understand. Because what, what we think is that if you can, like what you mentioned, if you can see it, how your counter, how your contrapartisan uh, does, just for a moment, you can then think there's not something wrong with them. You won't, you won't be drawn to the answer of, you know, they're pathological, they're stupid, they're brainwashed. You might think, oh, based on their experience, like we did with the fictional New York Times girl here, um, I understand why they would say that. I still disagree with them, but I get that. And that minimum ask, I think, can move the needle a little bit towards mitigating social animosity. John, we always like to try to wind down every show with just sort of a little bit of a palate cleanser, something good that's going on in everybody's world or the news. Uh, share a little bit of good news with us. Anything good going on in your world or something that you're seeing in the news that you're actually optimistic about? Oh, something that I'm seeing in the news that I'm optimistic about. I, I, I'm not known as a, as, a, as a wild optimist when it comes to the news. Um, well, look, the Narratives Project is, what, what we've found is that um, the work that we're doing is actually starting to, to land with people. Um, because our big challenge is we're trying to get these insights packaged into a format that people actually want to read. And that's a very difficult thing when you have natural human incentive structures and, and things like that. So that, that's a good thing. What else is going I got back into climbing. I've been bouldering quite a lot and uh, getting better at that. Um, Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> I, picked, I, picked, I picked up rock climbing. I mean, I'd always done it sort of recreationally for the past couple of years. I started first in college, but I didn't really get serious about it until early in the pandemic. We needed to just get some exercise and be around other people. So we got a gym membership, the rock climbing gym outside of DC. And for the first time last week, did actual crag climbing, nice. uh, top rope style crag climbing, and a little bit of mock lead out on a rock face in West Virginia. And it was just really cool and really scary and a huge thrill. Well done. Uh, yeah, I feel I feel like a better person now that I've actually been able to, to kind of con conquer that new challenge there. Yeah, it's it's yeah. good to have, you know, we're, we live in a world of 
politics and these narratives, and it, it can, particularly for me, I, I think it can drag me down a little bit because you're I'm spending a lot of time in negative conversations. But to have something that's completely outside of this, to go back to the real world, so to speak, um, is just, is, and I, I recommend it to everybody. It doesn't have to be climbing. It can be whatever it is you want to be, you want it to be. Just do something that isn't raising your blood pressure and making you hate other people on the internet, you know. Yeah, I think just having that moment to pause and reflect that the only thing that I need to do in this moment is get my top rope up to the next carabiner and clip it, or I'm going to fall and it's going to not feel good. Uh, that is therapy that sticks with you for an entire week, just that rush of adrenaline, that blood and pressure. It's, it's the focusing on, like my life goes, yeah. it is 18 inches in front of my face, this next hold. I'm, I'm no longer thinking about the national discourse. I'm no longer thinking about all these problems. I'm right here. How high have you climbed? I boulder. So yeah. I, uh, I I don't do top rope. All I do is boulder. Yeah. Um, I, I bouldered. The tallest thing I bouldered was something I probably shouldn't have bouldered. It was a dam when I was in college, about 25 feet. <laughs> I should not have done it. But I had a crash pad, but it was still a little bit above. Well, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you're I'm still fine. with us. I'm fine. Yeah. Yeah. I will, I will forego. I will forego my good news this week because I was actually going to talk about tackling that uh, that West Virginia crag oh, cool. as well. So I uh, just wanted to invite everybody listening, watching out there. We'd actually like to hear from you on good news, good things that you are seeing, things that got you optimistic, something good going on in your life that you want to share with us. We'll play it on the show. So please do send it to us. You can reach us on Twitter at RightlyAJ. So just send us a tweet with a video or audio embedded. Let us know. Or you can just shoot us a note and we will read it on air in a future week. That's it for this episode of Right Now. I'm Stephen Kent with this week's guest, Sean Kamak of The Narratives Project. Be sure to like this video, subscribe to the channel, so when you're getting a ping, uh, when we have new videos, which is every few days. We'll see you next week, and in the meantime, keep asking why, stay out of line, and be a bug in the system. Have a great week.